All right, brothers and sisters, uh, because we are about to celebrate our Feast of Trumpets, it is but right that we study all about the history of the Feast of Trumpets and how it points forward to the future work of our King and Mashiach, Yahushua. Before we go ahead and look at the specifics of the Feast of Trumpets, let us go ahead and understand first why we celebrate the Feasts of Yahuwah in the first place. And so we're just going to have a quick, quick recap of what we talked about last week in the book of Colossians chapter 2 and the verses are 16 down to 17 this is what it says so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbath uh, which are a shadow of things to come but the substance is of Christ so apostle Paul speaking to the Colossians he's not forbidding uh, the, the celebration of the feast he's not forbidding sabbath what he's doing is telling the members of the assembly there in Colos do not let the pagans influence their understanding and celebration of these religious festivals. Because what we've learned is that the festivals point to Yahushua, both in what he did in the past and also points forward to what he will do in the future. This is why it is a memorial and a rehearsal. And what, I, what we know from our last studies is the unfolding of redemptive history follows the pattern of the Moedim. This is why the Bible says it is Yahuwah's Moedim, Yahuwah's feast. It is his appointed times because no one has the right to change it except himself. And so he's following the Moedim as he determined them to be. And Yahushua, our king, because he is the source, he is the main person when it comes to the work of redemption, our king Yahushua follows the Moedim. He will follow the appointed time in the work of redemption. We saw this when we looked at the appointed times or the Moedim. We know that there are certain dates that correspond to, for example, the first four feasts of Yahuwah, Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, and Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. If you still remember, Yahusha did something in relation to the work of redemption on Passover. And what was that? Yahusha died. And then on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, our King Yahushua was in the grave. Feast of First Fruits, our King Yahushua resurrected and appeared to his disciples. And then on the Feast of Weeks, our King Yahushua sent the Holy Spirit to his ecclesia or to the assembly. And so all of this took place in the first advent or the first coming of our King Yahushua. Remember, when the Bible speaks of the first advent and the second advent, these are not single events. This is an age. And so when our King Yahushua came, when he was born, he preached the gospel. Then he was put to death. Then he was buried. He was resurrected. He gave the Holy Spirit. All of these events took place in the first coming or in the first advent, according to the pattern of the Moedim. So our King Yahushua, he fulfilled the Moedim. And so when we celebrate these feasts, like the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, we do so in honor of what our King Yahushua has already done. This is like some memorial, we offer thanksgiving and praise to Yahuwah and to Yahushua. However, when it comes to the last three feasts, not only do we serve it, or do we observe it as a memorial, but also we look forward to what our King Yahushua will do at his second advent. And so if the first advent was not a single event, the second advent is also not a single event, it's an age, that is to come. And so it is, it points to 
the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And so when we observe the feasts of the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, we, of course, are not going to literally fulfill the feasts, but we do so spiritually, which means we observe the feasts to remember what Yahusha has done, to remember what Yahuwah has done, and also as a rehearsal because of what Yahuwah and Yahusha will do in the future upcoming festival. So let's go ahead now and look at the Feast of Trumpets specifically. And it is also called Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah. It is the day of trumpets. Now, when is it celebrated? When is it observed? In the book of Leviticus 23, 23 to 25, then Yahusha spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, saying in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to Yahuwah. And so when is the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Trumpets, uh, celebrated? It's celebrated on the first day of the month. Which month? The seventh month. And so when we look at the religious calendar of the Israelites, that is upcoming, we are getting closer and closer to the seventh month. And the seventh month is marked by the first day of the month. And when the first day of the month of the seventh month occurs, that is when we blow the trumpets in celebration and in commemoration of this festival of Yahuwah. And so we call it the day of trumpets because on that day, what are the people to do? We are to blow trumpets in memorial of what Yahuwah has done and in rehearsal of what Yahuwah is going to do in the future day of trumpets through his son, Yahusha. And so what must we also remember concerning the day of trumpets? It is also a Sabbath rest. And so we do no customary work on that day. It is a day when we have a holy convocation and we're going to worship together. And so we're going to celebrate uh, the day of trumpets, a piece of trumpets, uh, September 25 or 24, depending on where you are located on the earth, because we're going to have just one celebration together. And later on, we'll announce to you the exact day and time so that we can be prepared for our celebration. And so there's a blowing of trumpets. And throughout the Holy Scriptures, there's different reasons why trumpets are blown. What are examples of trumpets being blown and for what purposes? Let's read the book of Numbers 10, 8 to 10. And the sons of Aaron, uh, the priests, are to blow the trumpets. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you and the generations to come. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets. Then you will be remembered by Yahuwah your God and rescued you, and rescued you from your enemies. Also at your times of rejoicing, your appointed feasts and new moon festivals, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellow offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am Yahuwah, your God. So what, are, what is one of the purposes of the blowing of trumpets? Here, the Bible tells the people of Israel that if they were go going to go into battle, what are they to do? To sound the 
trumpets. And when the trumpets are sounded, Yahuwah will remember and he will rescue his people from their enemies. Question, we, the people of Yisrael today, are we in a battle? Yes, we are in a battle against who? The chief adversary of our King Yahushua. Who is that? The devil. And so we also know that during these last days, we're so close to that day when our King Yahushua is gonna appear. The Bible teaches us that the devil is in great wrath and his target is the assembly. So we need to prepare ourselves. We need to blow the trumpets. We need to call upon our father Yahuwah that he will remember his covenant with us and he will deliver us as his covenant people. This is why on the day of trumpets, we're going to ask for the help of our father that in this battle that we are in, he will remember us and he will deliver us. What also is the purpose of blowing the trumpets? Joel chapter two, verse one, blow the trumpet, sound the alarm on Zion, God's sacred hill, tremble people of Judah, the day of Yahuwah is coming soon. What also is the purpose of the blowing of trumpets? It is to announce sacred events that are going to take place, namely the day of Yahuwah. And so when that day draws near, there needs to be a blowing of the trumpets because the blowing of the trumpet signifies a call for repentance, a call for preparation, a call for consecration. Not only is there a battle, there's going to be that day when the day of Yahuwah is going to come. This is why, if you notice, in the series of festivals appointed by our father Yahuwah, right after the day of trumpets, what is the next festival to be celebrated? It is the day of atonement. And for the people of Israel, that is considered like a day of judgment for the people of Israel. Because if they're not prepared, if they're not repentant, they will not survive. They will not remain people of Yisrael. This is why the day of trumpets, the feast of trumpets, one of its purpose is to call us to repent, to afflict our souls, to prepare for the day of atonement. And so once that blowing of trumpet sounds on September the 25th, September 24th, when we worship together, there's going to be a call for all members of the assembly of Yahusha to begin the examining of self, to repent so that we can be prepared for that feast called the day of atonement. So that's what we do when we commemorate the celebration of the day of trumpets. We are called to repent and to prepare ourselves for battle so that we can receive the power and strength of Yahuwah who will deliver us. However, the day of trumpets also points forward to future events. What could that be? What could the future event, the feast of trumpets could be pointing to or foreshadowing? Let's read here the book of Thessalonians. 4, 16 to 17, what important event is going to take place at the blowing of a trumpet? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. I think we all know this passage very well, right? We are waiting for a trumpet to be blown. 
And we believe this trumpet to be blown is going to take place on the day of trumpets. When this trumpet is blown, what's going to happen? Bible says those who are in Christ, they will meet our King Yahusha in the air, in the clouds to be with him forevermore. Whether dead or alive, if you belong to Yahusha, if you're a disciple of Yahusha, if you are in Yahusha, the Bible says you're going to be caught up together in the clouds. And there's a word that is used in the Holy Bible, a Greek word used, which means to be caught up in the air. Do you still remember that word? It is the word harpazo. The word harpazo means to snatch. And it's a miraculous kind of snatching. This is why all over the world, people who belong to Yahusha, when that trumpet is blown, the people who belong to our king, they're going to be snatched up into the air in some miraculous way. And they're going to be with our king Yahusha forevermore. Can you imagine what's going to happen when that takes place? Right? I mean, you're eating. All of a sudden, the trumpet blows and then you're gone. You're going to be with Yahusha. Well, what if you're eating, the trumpet is blown, but you're still eating? Well, then we better start repenting if we got left behind somehow. Right? So what we want to know is what we need to do. So when that trumpet is blown, we are together in the clouds to be with our king, Yahushua. It's called the harpazo. It's the snatching up into our king in his presence when he appears in the clouds. And so this is going to be signaled by a blowing of trumpets. Now, what trumpet is going to be blown, which would signal the harpazo or the snatching up into the clouds where our body is going to be changed to be with our king, Yahushua, forevermore. Let's read Corinthians 15, 50 to 53. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you in mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be change for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality so according to apostle paul something significant is going to happen on a day when there will be trumpets blown right when there are trumpets blown something's going to happen at the last trumpet what's going to happen at the last trumpet the bible says there's going to be a transformation that would take place amongst those who belong to our king Yahusha, in the twinkling of an eye, what's going to happen to our bodies? Bible says our bodies are going to be transformed from a weak and mortal body into a glorious immortal body because we're going to be with our King Yahusha forevermore. And we cannot be with our King Yahusha forevermore if our flesh remains flesh and our blood remains blood. It's going to be changed into something else, a glorious body like the body of our King Yahusha. This is why this is the answer to all those who have lots of sicknesses in their bodies. And I think that that is true for a lot of us. If we're human beings, we're going to suffer decay. We're going to grow in our bodies. But when that trumpet is blown, all of the problems we have with our bodies is going to go away. Our bodies are going to be changed into a glorious body in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And when is this day? the last trumpet to be blown so that we can be together with our King Yahushua when he appears in the clouds. Let's read Matthew 24. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And so when is this day when the blowing of trumpets will take place, which would be the signal for the people who belong to the Son of Man, where King Yahushua are to be gathered together and to be with him when he appears in the clouds there in, in heaven. It's going to be that day and hour, no one knows. Something that I want you to keep in mind. And we believe this will take place in the future day of trumpets or feasts of trumpets. And so when the first four feasts were fulfilled by our King Yahushua, because he did something significant when it comes to the work of redemption. And when it comes to the work of redemption, it's not only the redeeming of our souls, but also the redeeming of the earth. That's part of the plan of redemption, all the way to the everlasting kingdom that will be in heaven. And so there's a whole redemption process, restoration process that began when our King Yahusha came to earth, right? He was here, he was born, he preached the gospel, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, he sent the Spirit. So that's all part of the process of restoration and work of redemption. And it will continue when our King Yahusha returns on a future feast of trumpets, and he will return in the clouds to bring the ecclesia, the assembly, to himself, to be with him forevermore. And so if we are to look at the pattern of the first four feasts, it makes sense, right, that our King Yahusha will return and bring his ecclesia with him to heaven on the Feast of Trumpets. Now, for us to understand this, it, we need to look at some of the Hebrew idioms associated with the rapture or with the harpazo. Because on the Feast of Trumpets, when that trumpet is blown, there's the harpazo or the rapture, right? What are some of these Hebrew idioms? We talked about it already in Corinthians 15. It's called the last trumpet. That's one idiom. It's also called the day that no one knows, the day or hour. That's also an idiom. So there are two idioms that we need to look at, right? The last trumpet, the day and hour, no one knows. Actually, there's another, um, when you look at verse 36, before I go to looking at the, the two idioms, there's another idiom there, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. That's also an idiom, and we studied that already in the book of Revelation. That's an idiom pointing to the father, right, preparing for the wedding. And so only the father, because in the Hebrew idiom, it's only the father who knows and is the one who determines when the groom is ready to get his bride. So it's an idiom for the time and day when our King Yahushua will be allowed by the father to go and get his bride, which will be the harpazo or the rapture. So that's a different study. We're not gonna include that today, but for today, we'll look at these two idioms the last trumpet and that day and hour no one knows. Let's look at the last trumpet. What does it mean when the apostles speak about the last trumpet? Why did Apostle Paul use the word, the phrase last trumpet? Well, in Leviticus at 23, then Yahuwah spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel saying, in the seventh month on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing trumpets. So on the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month, 
when the trumpets are being blown, it's not just one trumpet blast, it's many trumpet blasts. As a matter of fact, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Trumpets, involves the blowing of four different kinds of trumpet blowing. The Tekiyah, the Shevarim, the Teruah, and the Tekiyah Gedola. What is that? Well, the first three, the Tekiyah, it's one long straight blast. It's followed by the Shevarim, three short blasts, and then the Teruah, which is nine quick blasts in short succession. And each blast are blown three times, then repeated 11 times, which totals how many? 99 shofar blasts. And the Tekiyah Gedola is one final blast because it's the final blast of a series of trumpet blows. What is that called? The last trump. And so the last trump is associated with the day of trumpets. And so when Apostle Paul said at the last trump, our bodies are going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, the use of the word last trump points to a day of trumpets. When there are many trumpets that are being blown and there's one final uh, trumpet, the Tekiah Gedola. And so Apostle Paul was using the Hebrew idiom, which is understood by the many of the members of the Assembly of Yerusha, because many understood the Hebrew idioms. And so Apostle Paul was using that to point to that day when we will be changed and associated that with the day of trumpets or the feast of trumpets. And so that's one proof that our King Yahushua is going to return on the day of trumpets, because on the day of trumpets is going to be the blowing of the Tekiah Gedola. What else? Well, there's another idiom, the day and hour no one knows. What is this all about? Well, it turns out in Israel, Yom Teruah is the only holiday uh, that lasts for two days. If you go to Google and you look for Yom Teruah uh, or the day of trumpets, piece of trumpets, it's going to list two days for, 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 for a reason. Uh, both days are considered one long day of 48 hours. So why two days? Well, because the Feast of Trumpets is the only feast that is marked not by a day, a date, or a time. Rather, it's marked by a sign in the heavens. And so to determine the date of the Feast of Trumpets, what the people of Israel had to do was to look for a sign in the heavens. Well, what is that sign in the heavens that they were to look for? Well, in the book of Psalms, 81 verse 3, sound the ram's horn at the new moon, and when the moon is full on the day of our feast. And so what is that day uh, that the Bible speaks of, which is the sign for the day of trumpets? Well, they look for the new moon. And so when we studied this before, when we talked about the Hebrew calendar, that new moon is basically when it is completely dark, right? And then you begin to see some slivers, right? they call it horns. And so what the people of God did was they looked for signs of the new moon. However, they assigned someone who was reliable, faithful, because if someone is not reliable and faithful, they might give you a false new moon. And so you don't want that. And so to make sure that you get accurate information, what they did was to have two or be two witnesses who will speak to whoever is in charge of making the holiday official 
these two witnesses would inform this person in charge and this person in charge after interviewing the two witnesses is going to declare it is the feast of trumpets this is why it's held in two days because no one you don't know in advance uh, when that day will be and the people need to prepare for the feast of trumpets and so deuteronomy 19:15. the reason why you need at least two is because one witness is not enough to convict the man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses so when it comes to settling something in a legal capacity or making something official like for example declaring when the feast of trumpets begins well it needs to be established by two or three witnesses during the days of our king yahushua here on earth uh it what the sanhedrin was ruled by i believe the Sadducees, and during the time of our king yahushua in the first century the sanhedrin required two witnesses to tell them when the new moon arrived once a month the sanhedrin discussed when to proclaim the new moon they did this through the agency of two witnesses the element of all legal transactions in jerusalem and so this is what was practiced during the days of our king yahushua on earth and so yahushua understood this the apostles understood this and so when the apostles wrote about the sayings of our king yahushua and what happened during the days of our king yahushua here on earth they did so within the context of understanding idioms associated with this event when it comes to identifying when the feast of trumpets will begin and so there's like a process by which the sanhedrin the president of the sanhedrin will declare when it is officially the day of trumpet so just before the moon's disc enters total darkness or waning crescent there's a there are tiny slivers of light on its edges these are the horns of the moon after correctly sighted the horns determine the beginning of the new month once the two witnesses were qualified in question if the president of the sanhedrin who knew astronomy was convinced of observation was accurate he publicly sanctified the start of the new month after scrutiny to determine the official arrival of the new moon the president proclaimed the new month with the word sanctified so the president of the sanhedrin is going to proclaim it is sanctified and all the people repeated after him sanctified sanctified after the proclamation the sanhedrin ordered watchmen on the nearby hills to light fires and thus inform the Jews in all of Judea, Samaria, Egypt, Babylon, and beyond that the new moon had begun. This started the festival of the new moon and the counting of the next 29, 29 days to the subsequent new month proclamation. And so this was the process. It required two witnesses. What did these witnesses look for? They were looking for the horns of the moon to be able to, and once they see that, once they see slivers of the new moon, they're going to go to the president of the Sanhedrin. They'll be interviewed to make sure that their both of their statements match. They're interviewed separately and independently. When it matches, and the president of the Sanhedrin is is satisfied with what information they got, he got, then he's going to declare a feast of trumpets so the feast of trumpets is the only feast that is marked not by a day a date or a time it's marked by a sign in the heavens this is why it, the feast of trumpets became traditionally known as the feast where the day and hour no one knows okay and so those are the two hebrew idioms the one first one the last trump 
And number two, the day and hour no one knows, which requires the testimony of two witnesses. And so these two idioms point to the Feast of Trumpets. And when you look at these two idioms and its association with the appearing of our King Yahusha, you put the two together and it points to the Feast of Trumpets being the day when our King Yahusha is going to return. Now, it's fascinating when you look at that pattern, right? The pattern of the idioms, the last trump and the day and hour no one knows and the need for two witnesses. The pattern appears to be repeated in Revelation chapter 11. And so if we wanna go deeper and look, at for, look for more clues that connect the Feast of Trumpets to the rapture or the harpazo, or the appearing of our King Yahusha in the sky, in the clouds, we can use these two idioms, the last trump, right? And also that day and hour, no one knows, requiring how many witnesses? Two witnesses. Already, you should begin to think when you hear the word, two, the words two witnesses, what comes to mind? The two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11, right? Uh, so what is the purpose of the, true, the two witnesses? Let's read here the book of Revelation 11, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Um, if you still remember, we talked about the two witnesses. These are two individuals, and these two individuals are going to do something in preparation for the coming of our king. He's, they're going to do something to prepare the people in the same way the two witnesses prepared um, statements so that the Sanhedrin can declare they are trumpets, right? So these two witnesses, they're going to be doing something because they're preparing the appearing of who? Our King Yahusha. And so what will they do? Seven to 10, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make a war against them, overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Apparently, the people of the world did not like the two witnesses, which is not surprising because the two witnesses were testifying about who? Our king, Yahushua. The people of the world did not like Yahushua. They liked the false messiah called the beast because he did wonderful things for them. And so they are one with the beast. And so when the two witnesses who, was who were prophesying and testifying about Yahushua, when they were put to death, the whole world celebrated. Can you imagine giving each other gifts because the two witnesses were put to death? But after the two witnesses were put to death, what would happen next? 11 to 14. Now, after the three... Three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and the tent of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Quickly. So according to scriptures, after the death of the two witnesses, after three and a half days, what happens to them? They get back on their feet. What do we call that? 
We call that the resurrection. They were resurrected. And after they were resurrected, they ascended to heaven. And so it's like what happened to our King Yahusha was being reenacted, right? Because it's also a message. What happened to the two witnesses was not only did they preach about Yahusha, his death, resurrection, and ascension, but they also modeled it for everyone to see. This is why they're very great witnesses. Not only did they teach it, they enacted it. They died, they resurrected, and they went to heaven. And so they were witnessing for our king, Yahusha. This is why we're called the two witnesses. And so the two witnesses was pointing to a day when our king, Yahusha, is going to come back. Just like the, which we believe is associated with the day of trumpets because the two witnesses also gave a message which leads the Sanhedrin to make official that this is already the day of trumpets. And so there's a connection there. But not only that, what also happens? Let's, let's keep reading in verse 15. Uh, then the seventh angel sounded. Want to pause for a while? It says the seventh angel. How many angels were going to be sounding when the seventh seal is open? How many? Seven. If you read Revelation chapter 8, the Bible says when the seventh seal was open, the seventh seal, which is the last seal. When the seventh seal is open, there were seven angels. Each angel had a trumpet, right? So the seventh angel who sounded, what does that mean? This is the seventh trumpet. Out of how many trumpets? Seven, which makes it what? The last trumpet. Does that make any sense? The last trumpet. And this happens after the two witnesses ascend to heaven. The last trumpet is blown. What happens? And the seventh angel sounded the last trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Something happened. When the last trumpet was blown, you notice what the temple of God was opened in heaven. Now, why would the temple of God be open in heaven? You only open it when you allow people in. Could this be the rapture? Could this be the harpatsa? Could this be Yahushua? When the last trump is blown, he ascends from heaven to the clouds, receives his ecclesia, and takes them to the temple of God, which was open for them. Could that be possible? It could be, right? I mean, it makes a lot of sense. This is the last trumpet. This is the seventh trumpet of seven trumpets to be blown. So it's the last trumpet. And not only that, what points to the harpatsa? Well, we read Revelation eleven fifteen. The next verse, the next verse is actually a new chapter, Revelation chapter 12. And this is what the Apostle John writes. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And so here in Revelation chapter 12, Apostle John is giving a description of what actually happened when the heavens were open and he talks about someone giving birth and if you read about and if you read revelation chapter 12 1 to 2 which we will read later on 
Um, this is speaking of Israel. Israel is likened to a woman. She gives birth to a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, right? Do you know who that male child is? Who will rule with an iron scepter? Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, who is that? Our King Yahushua. So Israel is the woman, gives birth to a male child, Yahushua, and then, and then her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And so there are two elements in this prophecy. The first part, a male child, Yahushua. The next part, her child, which is also Yahushua, but not specifically him as a person, but representing Yahushua's body, the ecclesia, or the assembly of Yahushua, the child. It's going to be snatched up. And so when it says snatched up, what does that mean? I wonder what word is used for snatched up. Well, if you go to uh, Blue Letter Bible and look at, look at snatched up or caught up in the King James Version, it's the Greek word 726. What does it say? The harpazo. And so when we look at Revelation 12 verse 5, this is the snatching up of the ecclesia represented by the child and this takes place at the blowing of the last trumpet after the testimony of the two witnesses and so the only time the word harpazo is used in the whole book of revelation is in revelation chapter 12 verse 5 and so the holy scriptures is telling us that there's going to be this harpazo event at the blowing of the last trumpet which is signaled by the ascension of the two witnesses and when you look at these two events it matches the two hebrew idioms associated with what the day of or the feast of trumpets this is why we are gaining more and more confident that indeed our king yahushua is going to return on the day of trumpets but is there more clues i mean what further proves that the harpazo the rapture will take place on the day of trumpets. Well, let's look for more clues. There's actually another clue that we find in the book of Genesis. Yeah, I want to read the book of Genesis to you. 8 verse 13. And it came to pass in the 601st year, this is uh, Noah's birth, this is talking about Noah, when he turned 601, in the first month, the first day of the month. Want to pause it for a while. Bible speaks about the first month, the first day of the month. What is that month? This is Genesis. The first month, the first day of the month. Do you know what that month is? Do you know what the first day of the first, the first day of the month of the first month is? That's the day of trumpets. That's Ram Teruah. But brother, you said Yom Teruah was on the first day of the seventh month, right? Not the first day of the first month. Yeah. Because our Father Yahuwah changed what is first and what is not first, right? When did he do that? In Exodus, in Exodus 12, 1 and 2, now Yahuwah spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, this month shall be your beginning of months. And this was the seventh month. The seventh month, according to Yahuwah, will not be the first month, okay? So this month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. And so when Exodus came, when it was time for them to leave Egypt and become a nation of their own, 
Yahuwah decides to change the numbering of the months. And so the seventh month became what? Month number one. And month number one became the seventh month. And so when we go back to Genesis 8.13, it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, this is actually speaking about Ram Teruah, Yam Teruah. This is the day of trumpets. The first month, the first day of the seventh month. That the waters were dried up from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. So something happened on Yam Teruah. What happened to the earth when the flood came? It destroyed the whole earth, right? But after the destruction of the whole earth, there was a new age that began. When was that? When, when Noah stepped out of the ark and the surface of the ground was dry. What does that mean? Judgment was over. The earth was redeemed. And so it was a new age. When did this new age take place? On the first day of the seventh month. It took place on Yom Teruah, on the day of trumpets. So the day of trumpets marks a new beginning, a new age for the people of Yahuwah over the earth. So the, the future day of trumpets will also announce the beginning of a new age. And this makes sense because when our King Yahusha comes back, he's going to usher in a new age. The, the age that we live in now is going to be past. It's now a new age when our King Yahusha returns. Not only that, we also know when the blowing of trumpets was done in the book of first kings 32 uh, 35 1 32 35 king david said calling zadok the priest nathan the prophet and benaiah son of jehoiada when they came before the king he said to them take your little servants with you and set solomon my son on my own mule and take him down to gihon there have zadok the priest and nathan the prophet anoint him king over israel blow the trumpet and shout long live king solomon then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. And so when you read the kings, when you read uh, about what happens when a king becomes the king, when it's announced who the new king is, right? It's always done with the blowing of trumpets. This is why there are many scholars who believe the inauguration of a king takes place on the day of trumpets and the, the beginning of a king's when you write the history books for the kings it begins always with the seventh month the first day of the seventh month or on a or on day of the day of trumpet in second kings 9 12 to 13 that's not true they said tell us jehu uh tell us jehu said here is what he told me this is what jehu says i anoint you king over israel they hurried and took their cloaks and spread them under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and shouted, Jehu is king. And so throughout scripture, when, when the king was being officially announced as king, right? There was a blowing of trumpets. Do you know what happened in Revelation 11 when the seventh trumpet was blown? You know what was announced when the seventh trumpet was blown? Let's go back to Revelation 11, 15. Then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. So the kingdom will be subjected to who? Yahushua. 
And so Yahushua is being announced in this seven trumpet event to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So he's officially being announced as King of Kings, right? But he hasn't acted yet his judgment as King. That's not going to happen until the Day of Atonement. Okay, but here it's being announced that he is now the King of Kings because all the kingdoms are being subject to our King Yahushua. So the future day of trumpets will announce the true king to be Yahushua, the Mashiach or the Messiah. So when we look at these clues, and they're plentiful clues, it's hard to deny. I mean, if you're going to be honest, it's hard to deny that Yahushua, as he performed his redemptive work in time past, followed the Moedim, it makes sense that he will also follow the Moedim to carry out the second advent work of restoration or work of redemption, which means on the trumpets is when he will return as king and he will and eventually he will rule over the whole earth. But it's still a process. And so when we look at the appointed times, the Moedim, right? We have the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Feast of First Fruits, Feast of Weeks, Day of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles. Remember, the Bible says these, these are Yahuwah's feasts. In other scriptures, it says, my feast. Yahuwah himself says it's my feast. Why does he say it's my feast? Because he's basically telling us these are my appointed times. In other words, we cannot change these events. We cannot change the timeline and the calendar of our father, Yahuwah. And so we have Passover. What did Yahushua do on Passover? Yeah, he died. And so this was a significant, the most significant work in the work of Redemption, right? Without this, we would not have uh, redemption. And so that was the big part. But what also did Yahushua do on Feast of Unleavened Bread? It was buried, right? And then the Feast of First Fruits. What happened to Feast of First Fruits? He resurrected and appeared to his disciples. So the first three events, this is called the gospel message. In Romans chapter 10, this is what the, the gospel is all about. It's to believe. Yahushua, our Lord, died, was buried, and he was resurrected. We need to believe this because these are the important, essential parts of the work of redemption, the work of restoration. And then what did Yahushua do on the Feast of Weeks of Pentecost? He sent the Holy Spirit, and there's a purpose for why he sent the Holy Spirit, so that the assembly can be empowered to speak and testify about who? Our King Yahushua. That's why this is our work. Our work is to preach and to proclaim and to teach about Yahushua. That he is our priority. Right? Our focus ought to be him. This is our chief work. This is what we aim to do. We want to do our best to make sure that we focus our work. We focus our minds and our hearts. Not upon our spiritual leaders. But upon the leader who is our King Yahushua. Because if we're going to be thinking and giving our adoration to someone else, then we who are the bride of Yahushua, we're not being faithful to our bridegroom or to our groom. We need to be faithful to our groom, right? So we need to be always testifying about our King Yahushua. And so what happens on the trumpets? Well, it's going to be the return of our King. So bring the ecclesia with him, right? And then he will return together with the ecclesia on the day of atonement. And this is when Yahushua comes to judge. This is when Armageddon takes place. And the armies that belong to the beast will be completely destroyed. Right? And then afterwards will be the 
celebration when Yahusha establishes the kingdom and this corresponds to the Feast of Tabernacle. So those are the events of the work of redemption. And it follows a timeline. And it's a beautiful timeline. And it's a beautiful pattern of, re of redemption. And so we know that the important events that will take place for our redemption will take place along one of these Moedims. Which brings us to a question. Okay, now, if it's true that important events are fulfilled on the Moedim, there's one important event that maybe, maybe a lot of us have forgotten about. Because none of this would be possible, right, if it were not for what? None of this would be possible, this work of redemption. It would be all useless if it weren't for what? <laughs> what do you think that is? All of this would be impossible. The death of Yahushua, the burial, the resurrection, the giving of the Spirit, the return, the judging, the establishing of a, a kingdom. None of that would take place if what? If Yahushua was never born, right? If Yahushua, our king, was never born, then none of this would take place. This is why if we talk about important events, we should also include the birth of our King Yahushua. Because, you know, what we were taught, you know, we shouldn't celebrate the birth of our King Yahushua because after all, we don't know when he was born, right? And so we don't celebrate Christmas, and rightly so, because it has pagan influence. We don't want to associate the birth of our King Yahushua with anything associating it with pagan belief, right? Just like we don't associate Easter with the resurrection of our King Yahushua because of the pagan influence. And so we need to believe that it's an important event. How many here believe the birth of Yahushua is worthy of celebrating? I think so. I mean, sometimes we celebrate our own birthdays, right? We celebrate the birthday of people we love. We know, how about our King Yahushua? Well, brother, when is the birth of our King Yahushua? When was he born, right? Is it possible? I mean, if the appointed times, the Moedim, if that was in, those were the important events that were to take place concerning our redemption, and the birth of our King Yahushua is a crucial part of the work of redemption, then isn't it logical to believe that the birth of our King Yahushua would follow or would probably be done one of these appointed times? Because all these seven times, these seven appointed times of our Father Yahuwah, this corresponds to significant events that Yahuwah is going to, to use when he carries out the work of redemption. And so I would think it's possible. Now, what I'm going to present to you today, okay, this is like bonus, bonus content concerning the Feast of Trumpets. And this is not meant to be dogmatic, okay? If you don't believe what I'm going to preach, I believe it personally, I believe it, but I'm not making you want to believe it. You know, you can disagree with me, that's okay. But I want to present to you what I believe personally based on the research I've done. And so I'm going to present that to you. It's up to you to accept it or not. I believe the birth, the birth of our King Yahushua happened on one of these appointed times or one of these Moedims because that's how Yahuwah does things. Yahuwah was in charge of when Yahushua is going to be born, right? Just like he was in charge of when he died. Everything that happens in history, Yahuwah has the last say. 
especially when it comes to his son. He has the last say, Yahuwah. And so when he was born, it's going to follow one of these Moedims. It's going to be according to one of these appointed times. I want you to guess, of all these Moedims, which do you think is the one that we can probably assume our King Yahushua was born? What day is that? Is it Passover? Could be, because it would make, it would make a nice kind of a chiastic structure, right? He died on Passover, maybe he was born on a Passover. That's possible, right? Feast of Unleavened Bread, possible. Feast of Free, uh, Feast of First Fruits, maybe. Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, he sent the Spirit, right, to his Ecclesia. So maybe it makes sense that he was born on the Feast of Weeks. Day of Trumpets, could be. Day of Atonement, Feast of Tabernacles, it could be, right? And so we have to decide which one of these seven feasts can we accept to be the day of the birth of our king, Yahushua? Well, if we, we can look at these appointed times in this way, it can be divided into two parts, right? When you look at the Moedim, the first part is the first advent. The second part is the second advent. When you look at the second advent of our king, Yahushua, when we speak of advent, it speaks of his second coming. The second coming of Yahushua, the second advent of our King Yahushua, is not a single event. It's a whole age. It's a whole age, which will include the Yahushua, Yahushua's return, Yahushua coming back to judge, and Yahushua establishing his kingdom. All of that is included in the second advent. And so when does it begin, the second advent? It begins on the day of trumpets, right? So the second advent of our King Yahushua began on the day of trumpets. Well, how about the first advent? Well, the first advent, when you think about the first advent, it did not begin with Yahushua dying. Because before Yahushua can die, he needs to uh, first be born. The first advent began when? First advent began when he was born. Right? So all these events, Yahushua being born, Yahushua preaching the kingdom, Yahushua dying, buried, resurrected, giving the spirit, all that is part of the first advent. But it had a beginning. Could it be that the beginning of a new age, the beginning of the kingdom, the beginning of the first advent was the birth of our King Yahushua? And if so, could it be that he was born on the day of trumpets? That's what we're going to find out. Is that okay? We'll spend about 30 minutes just to look at this part because this is really intriguing. Again, we're not forcing you to believe. We're going to present to you what we've uncovered. And so when we ask, for example, scholars who live in the second and third centuries, when do they believe Yahushua was born? In the first through third century, several reputable scholars, well, they estimated that Yahushua was born between 2 and 3 BC. Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Hippolytus of Rome, Hippolytus of uh, Thebes, Origen, Eusebius, and Epiphanius are a few of the more well-known figures. So there were scholars who lived in the second, in the first century, the second century, in the third century, including Irenaeus. And so these people were very close in proximity to the days and times of Yahushua and the apostles. So according to them, Yahushua was born between 2nd and 3rd BC. So something to keep in mind, 2nd and 3rd BC. Okay. So let's go ahead and look for more clues so that we can fill in the gaps. Because there's a lot of gaps. Because if we're going to tell you, oh, Yahushua was born between 2nd 
and third BC. It doesn't tell you a lot, right? So we need to look for clues. And to do that, we turn to, of course, the best source, which is the Holy Bible. So according to scripture, when was our King Yahusha born? Is it December 25? Probably not, but let's, let's look at clues. Luke 2, 1 to 7, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. What does that mean? She gave birth. So Mary gave birth where? Bethlehem. Why did they go to Bethlehem? Because Caesar Augustus, who Caesar Augustus? It was the emperor. It was the emperor of Rome during that time. Caesar Augustus, he called for a registration, a census to be taken. So it was when they were, when, when uh, Joseph went to Bethlehem, took his wife Mary with, with him, Mary delivered there, gave birth. Verse 7, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him up in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. So you have these songs about Yahusha being a manger, right? Because there was no room for them in the inn. All the hotels were fully occupied. And so he was born in a manger. Now we have clues here that people who love to study history can use as fodder and look at the exact dates as far as they can go so that they can pinpoint when he was born. Because you have clues here, Caesar Augustus, a census was given, Quirinius was governing Syria. I'm not going to go through all the details, but there's a book that if you want to read, it's an awesome book. It's the most comprehensive book about the birth date of Yahushua that has ever been written. This book covers all the relevant biblical, historical, and astronomical evidence showing when Yahushua was born. So according to the author, Ernest Martin, right, using the clues given by the Holy Bible, like for example, Augustus Caesar, this is what he has to say, the year 2 BC was one of the most important and glorious in the career of Augustus. It was the silver jubilee of his supreme rule over the empire and the year in which the Senate awarded him the country's highest decoration, a Pater Patrie Award, which was for the recognition for being the father of the country. So he was recognized as father of the country because of his Jubilee year. There, was a majestic, uh, there were majestic celebrations in Rome, the entire empire, and all the provinces. In 27 BC, Augustus had the Senate and the people of Rome pledge absolute allegiance to him. There was a renewal of their loyalty to Augustus in the Jubilee year. This explains the registration. And registration began in 3 BC and continued into 2 BC. Remember all those scholars in the first through third centuries? They said they believe it happened, the birth of Yahushua was between the third BC and the second BC. So this kind of corroborates that, right? Uh, Josephus, a Jewish historian, stated in his writings that Augustus demanded an oath of allegiance about 12 or 15 months before the death of Herod. This announcement can be tied to a decree going out from Augustus in 3 BC, 
that all people were to be given an oath of allegiance to Augustus at a designated time during the year. Obviously, the recording of oaths where people ascribed their names was a type of registration. That is what Luke described in the oath of loyalty mentioned by Josephus. It was brought, uh, is what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem. Then it makes sense that Mary would accompany Joseph. In a regular census, Mary would not have been needed to go with Joseph, nor would Joseph have needed to travel so far. Okay, and so a distinction between the regular census and the special census was made by the author looking at the purpose and reason for this registration. And the reason for that was because Augustus was celebrating his Jubilee year and there, he wanted to renew the loyalty of the people of Rome on a specific day. And so the registration started 3rd BC all the way to 2nd BC. And what else did um, Ernest Martin say about the historicity of this event? Well, he says both Joseph and Mary were descendants of David, right? So that's just true, and were legitimately heirs to the throne of Israel. Mary, as well as Joseph, were expected to sign the oath of loyalty to Augustus. And there's a reason why even Mary was required to sign an oath of loyalty. What is that reason? All res residents in Israel who were heirs were singled out to give the oath of allegiance. If you were an heir to the throne, because Mary and Joseph were of the blood of David, they were both heirs to the throne. So they became a target, a target for, for Herod. While everyone else went into his own city or to their own local neighborhoods, those of royal Judaic lineage had to register in Bethlehem. This is why they had to go to Bethlehem. Okay? They, it, it, it was not possible for them to just register where they were living which was in Galilee, right? They had to go all the way to Bethlehem, both Mary and Joseph, because they were of Judaic lineage, which means they're an heir to the throne, because only those of the line of David could be a king of Israel. So this would have, so this would even have involved Mary. It was possible in Jewish circles for female descendants of David uh, to have the rights of the succession and kingship for their offspring. Herod was anxious to know who the heirs were to protect his own dynasty. This Herod was Herod the Great. Remember, there are six Herods in the Bible. Six Herods in the Bible. This is why we need to identify the right Herod. This is Herod the Great. Herod was anxious to know who the heirs were to protect his own dynasty. This was especially important because he was a great deal of Messianic expectation for a Jewish king at the time. Augustus's requirement for an oath of allegiance provided Herod the cover he needed to require people to declare similar allegiance to his kingdom. He added his, this requirement to Augustus's oath. And so the reason why Augustus required that the people who had Judaic lineage to go to Bethlehem, because um, Herod wanted to keep an eye on them, wanted to know who they were, okay? And so he persuaded the, the empire to do that. And so what we know so far, because of, the C, because of the registration and the purpose of the registration, this took place in 3 BC. So we know, you can cross out 2 BC, we know that Yahushua was born in 3 BC. So far, so good, right? But let's look for more clues. The book of Luke, chapter 2, 8 to 14. Now, there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, 
and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people, for there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So according to scriptures, Yahusha was born at night when the country shepherds were living out in the fields, keeping watch over the flock by night. So if the shepherds were living out in the fields, and they were out at night shepherding the flock, what does that tell you about the season of when our King Yahushua was born? It's probably not during winter time. So we can cross out December, right? Summer, maybe early fall, spring maybe. Okay, so in 3 BC, probably springtime, summertime, somewhere there, where the shepherds can be comfortable being outside in, in Bethlehem. What else? What are other clues that we have? In the book of Luke 1, 5 to 6, uh, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. So here we have another clue. Because Yahusha was born three months after the birth of John the Baptist. Who were the parents of John the Baptist? Zacharias and Elizabeth. Zacharias was also a priest. Because he was a priest, there was an assignment given to all the priests who come from the line of Aaron. Remember, Aaron was appointed by Yahuwah to be the high, to be a, to be priest, right? And he was uh, the high priest. And Aaron, according to Yahuwah, for one to become a priest in the future, he had to be, he has to have a connection by blood with Aaron. And so Zechariah had that. He had the bloodline that takes him all the way to Aaron because he belonged to the division of Abijah. Abijah. Now, who was Abijah? Well, according to Chronicles 24, if you read the book of Chronicles, chapter 24, Eleazar and Ethamar were the sons of Aaron. Remember, Aaron had sons, Eleazar, Ethamar, Nadab, Abayu, but we all know what happened to Nadab and Abayu. They died. And so he has Eleazar and Ethamar. And so the descendants of Aaron, who can become priests to serve in the temple, well, they had to have uh, lineage with Eleazar or Ethamar. Okay? And so Eleazar and Ethamar, who were son of Aaron, took up priestly duties under King David. Ethamar had eight sons, where Eleazar had 16. 16 plus 8 equals how many? 24. So there are 24 divisions of the priesthood after Aaron. The sequence of service for each of these sons in the temple was decided by drawing lots. Drawing lots resulted in a designated order of ministering Yahuwah's temple according to the rules God gave Aaron. Uh, there were 24 priestly families in total. The Abijah family was the eighth course, each family being referred to as a course or family. The course is when one of the 24 families completes their assigned one-week service period. And so what happens is you have these 24 families, 
and each of the 24 families represents a priest, a family of priests. And they're assigned to rule the, to, to oversee the temple. And their assignment is for one week, it's going to be one of these families. And so every 20, there's 24 families, so they rotate according to their assignments. And so when we determine these dates for these assignments, then we can kind of go back to when Zechariah was assigned and determine a date from there. The only exact date uh, for an order of service comes from Josephus' book, Antiquities of the Jews. It states that the first family, Jeho Jehoi Arib, was on duty when Jerusalem was besieged during the first week of April 70 AD. And so if this was the first family and Abijah is the eighth, and so you kind of do the math and it takes you back to certain dates. However, it's not that easy because there's a lot of issues, a lot of questions that come up. And so many scholars who've studied this, they don't agree. However, most scholars, although they disagree in the specific dates, many have suggested two possibilities, two possibilities. If the week was in May, June, then a date for the birth of John would be in March or April and Yahusha in the fall, six months later in September. So that's one possibility. Okay, if the week of service were in September to October time, Yahusha would have been born in December, January. So that's another possibility. Most of the studies on the subject favor a September or October birth date as opposed to a December or spring date. The emerging pattern points to fall 3 BC as the birth date of our king, Yahusha. And so based on the calculations on the dates of when these uh, priests of the different courses or family groups perform their services according to historical records, the scholars who study this made the conclusion there are two possibilities. Either Yahusha was born on December, January, or Yahusha was born September, October. Okay, So we're kind of narrowing uh, the possibilities here. We know it's in, th in 3 BC. Now we know it's probably in the fall of 3 BC. But you know, between these two choices, December, and September, I think it would be September. Why? Because after all, if it's December, October, December, January, it'd be too cold. But September would be perfect, perfect weather. And so according to further research, Luke states Zechariah was serving during the week when the eighth course of Abijah served. This course had duty two times each year, one in late spring and again in late autumn. Martin determined the time of John's conception May 19 to May 24, and birth near March 10, 3 BC. This places Yahusha's birth, Jesus' birth, Yahusha's birth near September of, of 3 BC, because he was born three months after John the Baptist was born. So now we have September 3 BC, right? And so we're kind of marrying it down. So Yahusha was born September, according to the records of 3 BC. But we need to look for more clues. It's a good thing the Bible gives us more clues. In the book of Matthew 2, 1 to 7, Now after Yahushua was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, 
For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. So what other clue do we have so that we can kind of pinpoint the date when our king Yahushua was born? The stars, right? That the heavenly bodies. And it's a good thing when it comes to the heavenly bodies, it's more accurate than historical records. <laughs> historical records is not really that accurate. But the records of the heavens, that's precise, right? And so it's a good thing. The Bible tells us about the star, and many people call this the star of Bethlehem. There were these wise men who made the journey and reached the king, we reached Herod, after the birth of Yahushua. And the reason why they went all the way and speak to the king was because they knew that Yahushua was already born. Why did they know that? Because they saw his star. Where were they from? From the east. From the east, the star was their sign. So they saw a star, right? According to them, they saw a star. And that star meant, and it pointed to Jerusalem. It pointed to Bethlehem for the birth of our King Yahushua. So when the king finds out about this, what does he instruct uh, the, uh, the wise men to do? The king says, look for this Messiah was born and tell me all about it, right? And so what do they do? Uh, 8 to 12, and he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. Of course, he's lying. <laughs> he's going to kill him. That's what he wants to do. When they heard the king, they departed and behold, the star which they had seen in the east uh, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So we had these wise men from the east. And from the east, they saw a star, and the star was moving. And the star stopped, and where it stopped, it pointed to Yahushua in the house, right? And so we have guidance here. The Bible's telling us how we can identify the date of when our King Yahushua was born. And so let's look at the clues. There's a star seen from the east that point to Jerusalem or that point to Israel. What could be that star? I'm going to read to you uh, from the uh, Indiana University. Star of Bethlehem may have been planets Jupiter and Venus. Wanna kind of before we read further, when you think about stars, these wise men, when they were looking into the heavens, they saw a lot of bodies that were glowing, right? Planets, when you look at it from our naked eye, what do they look like? They look like stars, don't they? In fact, the most visible, the most visible things in the in the heavens, aside from the moon and the sun, are planets. Because planets look like stars. If you go outside tonight and look at the most highly illuminated heavenly bodies, aside from the moon, it will be the planets. They look like stars, but they're really, really, really um, salient. You can tell that they're kind of different from the others. And so it's possible that the star of Bethlehem could be Jupiter. Jupiter is a big planet, right? So anyways, uh, according to the study, early in the evening of June 17, 2 BC, uh, the brightest planets in the sky, Jupiter and Venus, 
merged into a dazzling star near the western horizon, according to calculations of modern astronomers. In countries to the east, right, the wise man from the east, in countries to the east was then the kingdom of Judea, observers who would have seen the fused planets to them, it's like a beacon in the direction of Jerusalem. And so when you have Venus and Jupiter in conjunction or in alignment, depending on where you were located on the planet, it's going to be a bright star. And so when Jupiter and Venus were kind of together, it kind of caught the attention of the wise men. Okay. And so this kind of led them to the thinking process. Maybe this is the star because Jupiter, the bright star, and Regulus, which is the brightest star, actual star, it, something's going to happen to the two. They're going to actually merge. This is the same study that uh, I just showed you from Indiana University, the birth of Jesus. It says, in September 3, in September of 3 BC, so September again, 3 BC, something happened. Jupiter came into conjunction with Regulus. Regulus was the brightest star, the star of kingship, the brightest star in the constellation uh, Leo the Lion. Leo was the constellation of kings, and it was associated with the Lion Judah. Just a month earlier, Jupiter and Venus had almost seemed to touch each other in another close conjunction in the east. And so something caught the attention of the wise men. It could have been Jupiter and Venus together. Okay, And then all of a sudden, Jupiter moves in September to be in conjunction with Regulus. And so this really caught the attention of the wise men. Then the conjunction between Jupiter and Regulus was repeated in February and May of 2 BC. And so now the wise men were kind of being guided. They're following the stars. They're following the star of Bethlehem when, when Jupiter and Regulus were in alignment or in conjunction. Finally, on June 17, 2 BC, Jupiter and Venus, the two brightest objects in the night sky except for the moon, uh, came, to, came so close that their disks appeared to touch this exceptionally rare event could not have been missed by observers such as the wise men. So the wise men were looking for signs in the heavens and they found it first when Jupiter and Venus were in conjunction. And then all of a sudden, Jupiter was in conjunction with who? With Regulus. And this happened again in February and May. And so it was like the star of Bethlehem was moving, right? It was following them. And then it says the star, which had been in the east, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Remember, when it was seen from the east, it's like a beacon that points them to where? Jerusalem, right? Because from their point of view, it's like right underneath Jerusalem. And what we will see later is going to be Bethlehem, okay? And so another astronomer who did the study kind of even specify the exact date. Here it is. I mean, hold on to your seats, okay? This is what an astronomer who was the founder and used to be the president of the Monterey Institute of Research and Astronomy there in, in Monterey, California. This is what he did some research on the star events here that we were talking about, and also looking at the possibilities of what the star of Bethlehem represented. And he said, September 11. 3 BC is perhaps the most interesting date of all because Jupiter was in very close proximity to Regulus and at the same time the sun 
was in the constellation of Virgo together with the new moon. Okay, and so something interesting happened September 11, 3 BC. Uh, Jupiter was in conjunction with Regulus, and the sun was in the constellation of Virgo, and that's important, we'll talk about that later, together with the new moon. And so this astronomer specified the date, September 11, 3 BC. I want you to keep that date in mind, September 11, 3 BC. Now, question is, well, how did this, the star kind of stay in place? Because it mentioned it stopped, right? Not only was it moving, but it actually stopped. What does that mean? Well, according to, again, the astronomer, this is what he said, but if the planet Jupiter was the star of Bethlehem or was a component of the events that triggered the visit by Magi, how do we view the final appearance of the star on their journey to Bethlehem? It would have been in the southern sky, though fairly high above the horizon. Could it have stopped over Bethlehem? What does he say? Yeah. See, the word stop was used for what we now call a planet stationary point. A planet normally moves eastward through the stars from night to night and month to month. They regularly exhibit a retrograde loop or an apparent change in movement. So we have to understand something here. The planet is moving, the stars are moving, and when you put the two together and do some physics, sometimes it moves in different directions and sometimes it stops, okay? As it approaches the opposite point in the sky from the sun, it appears to slow, come to a full stop, and move backward or westward through the sky for some weeks. So it slows, it stops, and resumes its eastward course. It seems plausible that the Magi were overjoyed and again, seeing before them the star Jupiter as it traveled southward. Jupiter was standing still over Bethlehem. And this is according to the work of a scientist, Craig Chester, co-founder and president of MIRA, Monterey Institute for Research in Astronomy. Right? But, you know, this is why when you look at Matthew 2, 8 to 12, the star moving, it's actually Jupiter moving and being in conjunction with um, the star, I mean, the, the, the regular star, Regulus, right? And when you consider the motion, sometimes when the, the planet, when the Earth's motion, planet Earth, and the motion of the star, it, when it's in a position in such a way, it appears to stop. And so that's what happened. For a few moments, it actually stopped. And it's right above Bethlehem. That's why when they saw the child, they knew that was the Messiah. And so what did they do? They worshiped the child who was Messiah. Take note, in Matthew chapter 2, by the time the Magi get there, he was already a child, right? Several months old, no longer a baby or infant. He was several months old, maybe in May or June, because he was born in September. And then there were several conjunctions after the conjunction, which signified the birth of Yahushua. Okay, so something to keep in mind. But there are actually more signs. There are more signs. I mean, if some people ask us, if Yahushua's birth was so significant, why doesn't the Bible speak about it? It actually does. In fact, the Bible tells us specifically even within the hour when our King Yahushua was born. Why? Let's read the book of Revelation 12, 1 to 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. We know this is referring to Israel, 
giving birth to the child. Who was that child? Yahusha, right? And here, uh, the sign that was given is a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head a garland of 12 stars. So when we look at this great sign, it involves the sun, the moon, what else? The stars. So these are heavenly signs. And so we need to look at the heavenly signs and what they mean. Because when we look at the heavens, for example, with the naked eye, we see a lot of stars and we see constellations. Constellations were they recorded in the Holy Bible. The book of Job 38, 31 to 33, the Bible says, can you, this is Yahuwah speaking, by the way, Yahuwah says, can you, can you bind the clusters of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Or can you guide a great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Here's Yahuwah speaking, and he's talking about the Maseroth. You know what the Maseroth was? Before he spoke about the Maseroth, he gave examples. So Yahuwah says the Pleiades. The Orion, the Great Bear. What are they? Constellations. The constellations. Yahuwah is speaking about the constellations, and he's speaking about the Maseroth. What is the Maseroth? Well, it turns out the Maseroth, the Hebrew word is 4216, Mazara, which are the 12 signs of the Zodiac. And there are 36 associated constellations. So the constellations, the Zodiac signs, they're in the Bible. The stars that form constellations, they were in the Bible. And they, the, the people of Yahuwah, the ancient people, observed the pattern of the stars and, have, and they noticed that they have an annual cycle. And so the zodiac cycle, the zodiac sign is biblical. However, Yahuwah gives us a warning. What is that warning, 4713? You are weaving in the multitude of the councils. Let, uh, let now the astrologers, the stargazers, and the monthly prognosticators Stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. So Yahuwah tells us there are constellations. There are stars in the heavens. However, we are not to use them to prognosticate. What does that mean? To prognosticate. Fortune telling. This is why fortune tellers, diviners, those who use the zodiac to predict their future. That is not what Yahuwah intended the signs in the heavens for. What is the purpose of the sign of the heavens? To communicate the gospel. Remember, Yahuwah communicated the gospel in creation, like the crimson worm. He also communicated by means of the word, the actual word. He communicated by means of an actual person, our King Yahusha, and also the stars. The stars also speak about the gospel. And so when the constellations were made, it was made, what determined that was actually Yahuwah. But we were not meant to use that to prognosticate or to give fortunes, okay? Do not use that. But the, uh, the constellations are biblical. And what's their purpose? Genesis 1.14, and God said that there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. So the Bible mentions the lights in the firmament of the heavens. What are they? The sun, the moon, the stars. What's their purpose? for seasons, for days and years, and also for what? Signs. This is why in Revelation 12, when it mentions a great sign, it's speaking about a sign in the sun, the moon, the 12 stars. It's a constellations involving the sun and the moon. And this constellation 
all stars together with its position relative to the moon and the sun is telling a story. It's speaking about the gospel, how Israel is going to beget Yahusha, the child who will rule with an iron rod. And so it's in the gospel, it's in the skies. The gospel message is in the heavens. And another person who investigated that from his book, uh, Mysteries of Jesus' Life Revealed, Joseph Leonard, the sign given in verse 1 of Revelation 12 is what is that of a woman? The only sign of the Maseroth, the zodiac, which depicts a woman is the consolation of Virgo. The birth of the Messiah is associated with this heavenly spectacle. The vision given to John associates specific positions of the sun and the moon in relation to Virgo, located within the normal paths of the sun and moon across the heavens. The specific locations of the sun and moon in relation to the woman gives us clues to the specific day and time for the birth of the Messiah. So according to the author, when you look at the constellations, you will find Virgo. Virgo is the only constellation associated with a woman. And when you look at Virgo, the, the, the sun, the moon, we position in such a way because all these heavenly bodies are always moving, right? And so from a certain point of view from Palestine or from Jerusalem, there's going to be the movement of the heavenly bodies that will create certain situations where you find the description of Revelation 12 to be enacted. And so this is how it kind of looks like. You have uh, the sun there in Virgo, Jupiter, which is the depiction of the Bethlehem star pointing to Yahusha. It's in the womb, right? The moon is on the feet and there's 12 stars on the head. It's kind of difficult to see if you're not acquainted with the constellations, but the author himself, you know, he kind of wrote a diagram. And he also had an explanation concerning when all of these positions, the stars um, being up on top of the head of Virgo and the sun being enclosing it, encasing it, and the moon being in its feet, and this all took place in 3 BC in a specific, unique time. When is that? The sign of the, uh, the sign of the sun clothing the woman, Virgo, defines a period of 20 days. It's only possible in 3 BC in a 20-day span, August 27 to September 15 for the year 3 BC. It is the additional sign of the moon being under her feet, which actually pinpoints the nativity, the birth of Yusha, within a day to within 90 minutes of that day. Can you, imagine, can you imagine the precision? It's like what we said, you know, when you look at the records of the stars and the heavenly bodies, it's more precise than historical records. In the year 3 BC, these two relationships of the sun and moon and Virgo came into alignment for only an 81 minute period, as observed from Palestine in the twilight period of September 11th. This relationship began at 6.18 p.m. sunset and lasted until 7.39 p.m. moonset. And so this kind of corroborates what the other astronomer from Monterey said, September 11. They were not talking to each other. These are two different independent studies. And they both say September 11. In this one, it's even more specific. It occurs in a time frame of September 11 that covers only an 81-minute period, right? September 11, 6.18 p.m. to 7.39 p.m., the moon set. And so this took place at night. And this is exactly what the Bible says, right? Keeping watch over the flock by night. And so at night time, 
And when we go back to the research of Craig Chester, when he said September 11, 3 BC is perhaps the most interesting date of all, Jupiter was in very close proximity to Regulus, right? And the sun was in the constellation of Virgo together with the new moon. So not only was the moon under the feet of Virgo, the moon was what kind of moon? A new moon. And so according to Ernst Martin, the position of the moon in relation to the constellation Virgo and the sun pinpoints the exact day of Yahusha's birth on September 11th. The date on the biblical calendar was the first of Tishri, the feast of trumpets associated with God's kingship. So according to these three independent researchers, they all confirm the same date, September 11th, 3 BC, which on that year happens to fall on what day? The day of trumpets. Does it mean Yahusha's birthday is September 11 all the time? No. It's on the day of trumpets, right? And so when we look at the Moedim, it makes sense that Yahusha's birth that happened on the day of trumpets, it marks the beginning of his first advent. And when he returns to get his ecclesia or assembly, it marks the beginning of the second Advent. And so the, the Feast of Trumpets is the only feast that is marked not by a day or date or a time, rather it's marked by a sign in the heavens. And so the sign was when the two witnesses look for a sign for the day of trumpets. And so even when it comes to the birth of our King Yahushua, you have to look for these signs in the heavens. Is that coincidence? I don't think so. I think the Bible is telling us that maybe perhaps the birth of Yahushua was on the day of trumpets and so if we're going to celebrate the birth of our king Yahushua, i think the best date to select right would be the uh, trumpets and so we now have a reason for celebration this coming day of trumpets we will celebrate the birth of our king why is it good to celebrate the birth of our king let's read one final passage before we pray luke 2 11, uh, 10 and 14 it says and the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold i bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. If the angel celebrated when Yahushua was born, don't you think we should also celebrate? I think so. I mean, if we're going to celebrate the birth of our King Yahushua, now we have a good reason. The angels celebrated, and this happened, we believe, on the Feast of Trumpets. So when we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, it's a memorial and a rehearsal. Why is it a memorial? It goes back to when our King Yahushua was born. Right? Why is it a rehearsal? We are rehearsing for his second advent, which will be initiated when Yahushua appears in the heavens. When the trumpet is blown, and we will be changed, and we will be together with him. This is why when the angels, the heavenly hosts, the joy the angel of Yahuwah, they sang, glory to God, the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Because Yahusha, the one born on that day, he is our Savior, and he is our Lord. And so this coming celebration of the... Uh, these trumpets, let us keep in mind this great day of joy when Yahushua was born. And let's express our thanksgiving 
to our Father, Yehuda. Let us stand, brethren, and we shall pray together. Everlasting Father, Yahuwah Abba, you did not have to give up your son. You did not have to send a redeemer because of our sins. You chose to do so because of your love. And so when he was sent, when he was born of a virgin, when Yahusha finally arrived, according to your plan and purpose, there was reason for great rejoicing. We thank you for what you have done, the sacrifice that you have made. We thank you because you have called us to have this wisdom. Help us that we will all the more appreciate the Feast of Trumpets, our celebration of it, as we commemorate the day when you sent your son in preparation for our salvation. Our King Yahushua, indeed, there is reason for rejoicing because you are our Savior. You were born so that you can die for our sins. And after you have died and you resurrected, we know our sins have been covered by your blood. And so we look forward to meeting you in the sky to be with you forevermore. Father, bless us as we prepare for our upcoming observance of the festivals. Teach us to do everything according to faith, moved by our heart for you and for your son. We believe, Father, you have listened to our prayers. We ask everything in the name of our Lord and Savior, Yahusha HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.